Welcome to another episode of the Agony of Defeat podcast. This is Jonathan Weiler. I'm a professor of global studies at UNC Chapel Hill. Yeah, and my name is Matt Andrews. I'm a professor in the Department of History at UNC Chapel Hill. I teach courses on the intersection of sports and politics. Jonathan does the same. Yes. Uh, how's it going, Matt? I'm doing well, Jonathan. I was just telling you that I was up in Chicago this this past weekend. I had kind of a cool sports weekend. The highlight was first time, you know, I teach my course on baseball and American history. I talk about Wrigley Field all the time. Finally visited it. Um, it was as awesome as I thought it was going to be. It, it lives up to its billing, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. You know, I, I certainly felt that way about Fenway the first time I visited many, many years ago. And for some reason, I just hadn't made it to Wrigley. I've been to two dozen ballparks and Wrigley just wasn't on the list. You know, it was a 1 p.m. game. The people around Wrigleyville were just hammered when I arrived <laughs> around 1130, which is exactly I, what I, I expected. I, as, it, as it should be, yes. As it should be. And I was there with my, my daughter. I, you know, I decided to totally splurge. I bought tickets in the fifth row behind the Giants dugout. My, my team, the Giants, were there. Turns out the fifth row is the front row. I had no idea. So uh, pro tip for those of you going to Wrigley, row five is the front row when you're behind the dugout. So it was awesome. Loved everything about it. How about you? It's a, but, but wait, Matty, there was also, you had another good sports moment over the weekend. You, oh, yeah, I guess. Um, you know, if you're into these kinds of things, I, I was walking around um, the Grant Park with my my girlfriend. And then I saw this guy with his girlfriend walking two dogs. I'm looking at the dogs first. And then I look up at the guy and I'm like, hey, that's Lonzo Ball. Uh, he newly signed on the Bulls. So chatted with him for a little while. Fellow UCLA alum. Fellow UCLA alum. Yeah, I don't think he's a grad, although maybe he went back, although he would have had to have done three years. So probably yeah. not. Yeah, I, I told him I live in Chapel Hill. He said, yeah, my brother works in Charlotte, you know, so we had uh -huh. that kind of conversation. <laughs> All right, cool. So, yeah, that was cool. How about Good. you? Anything, anything as spectacular as my weekend? Definitely not as spectacular. I did go to another Bulls game. I went to a Durham Bulls game Thursday night. Um, probably the fourth or fifth time I've gone this year. And it was, yeah, it was just a, a lovely, a lovely evening. The, the, the Durham Bulls are just 15 bucks and beautiful yeah. evening. And it was, it was fun a lot stuff. Fun. Live sports, man. Live sports are good. Yeah. And Daniel, hold on, can we meet Daniel? And Daniel, you were in the, in, in the stadium on, on Saturday, I assume, for the football game? Yeah, I got to be in there with a the band, got to see all the people. It was awesome. Was it? Yeah. yeah. Once again, uh, this weekend for, for UVA, correct? Yeah, we're, uh, we're supposed to be sold out this weekend. So uh, wow. we'll, see, we'll see how that goes. Okay. All right. Yeah. 60,000 people. You know what? I was about to say 60,000 people. No one wearing masks in the middle of a pandemic. That's exactly what Wrigley Field was like on, right. on, on, right. on Friday. So right. whatever. Right. So, Matt, the main, uh, we, we, have a, we had a specific homework assignment that we gave ourselves for this. Right episode and that was to watch a newly released documentary on the malice in the palace yeah yeah malice of the palace uh, on netflix i i didn't realize this part of an uh, of a series uh called untold um five different documentaries about sports that deal to an extent with mental health or with the psychological aspects of of the game um and i've seen two of them now i'll tell you about about another one in just a second or maybe okay. at the very end but yep jonathan i did my homework i watched it last night i'm ready to talk about it you, you, you made it under the wire 
Yes, yes. <laughs> it's um, very yeah. fresh in my mind. Yeah, that's good. I, I watched it a couple of weeks ago. So maybe we should talk a little bit about what the Malice in the Palace was. Um, and then we can talk about the, or just our reactions to the, the documentary. Yeah, all right. So for those who don't know, it was a November 2004 game. Uh, the Indiana Pacers were at the Detroit Pistons. And uh, one of the things I was reminded of is actually, I, I'd forgotten this, is how good the Pacers were that, that yes. year in this documentary. Yes. They were right. kind of thinking, this is our year. Right. Um, then, so the so the Pistons and the Pacers, just to provide some context, were they played each other in the spring of 2004 in the Eastern Conference Finals. The Pistons right. won and then went on to win the NBA title. So the Pacers were themselves a championship contender who very much thought that the 2004-2005 season right. was going to be their season. Jonathan, they showed the end of that series. Did you catch the score of the I, final God, game? I was just going to ask you the same question. I, I I guess I remember this. It was 69 to 65 was, was the final score. They were showing that. I'm like, why are people celebrating at the end of the first half? Or what's going I mean, on here? That is in today's NBA, and I know we're going to talk about how much this fight actually ushered in a new era of basketball. But I was going to say, today's NBA, that is a halftime score. That's a halftime score in the playoffs, maybe in the, at the end of the third quarter, maybe for a and, very low. In, in a very low scoring game, maybe. Yeah, yeah. and I was, it, it made me think back to the NBA of this era. And, you know, I mean, one of the arguments was that the, the offensive skills of the players just aren't that good. But at the same time, the Pistons and the Pacers, those were great defensive Those are great, teams. yes. And, and the and the physicality of the game back Ooh. then, the way it was officiated, what the players were allowed to do to each other, it was, I mean, all of which I think builds up to the malice in the palace. It's like it was a different sport. Uh, almost. Yep. 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 And then so these two teams meet in November. It's an early season game. I think it's like the 10th game for each of them. And the, the game is over. The, uh, the Pacers have... have, have all, basically won the game they're up I don't know 15 or something with a minute to go and then Ron Artest commits a hard foul on Ben Wallace Ben Wallace of the Pistons pushes him back uh, one thing leads to another and then the next thing you know there are Pacers players in the stands yeah and, and, and this game is in Detroit the palace is the palace of Auburn Hills this is where the Pistons play and as Matt just said the Pacers have a 15-point lead in the final minute when this completely unnecessary scrum breaks out and then all hell breaks loose. Yeah, and I, I think we want to talk about what was the most unnecessary part of the scrum. I mean, where, you know, who is to blame for this this moment? But Jonathan, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, did you see this live? Do you remember? So, so no, I, so I, I did not see this live, Matt, because I, in fact, was in Kiev, Ukraine, <laughs> that's no excuse Jonathan <laughs> I arrived at like whatever it was four o'clock in the morning I was actually monitoring I was part of a team monitoring the presidential election we got to the hotel at like four o'clock or I don't know five o'clock in the morning and I turned on CNN International and all they were talking about oh, that's was this fight huh. <laughs> At the, uh, that, uh, at, at the end of this game. So, so even in Kiev, it was news. I realized. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. 
Yes. Well, I was doing uh, nothing quite so noble as monitoring elections in, in the Ukraine. I was in a sports bar that, that Friday, uh, okay. Night, okay. which I actually don't go to very often. Um, I usually don't go out to watch sports, but you may remember uh, the UNC basketball team was very good that year. In fact, they ended up winning the national championship yes. that year. Yes. And that Friday night, it was an early season game. They were on their way to play in Maui, but they stopped off in California to play Santa Clara. Oh, and uh, I went out with a bunch of buddies to watch that game at UNC actually lost that game kind of shockingly, uh -huh. but about midway through that game, you know, it's on every single TV, except one where the yeah. NBA game is yeah. someone says, look at that. And so, you know, 200 of us turn away from the UNC game and we're like, turn that on. What is going on? And we, we caught it about a couple minutes in and then basically no one watched the UNC game the rest of the time. We just wanted to watch replay after replay and try to figure out what was going on. Hey, I, I had never seen anything like it in basketball. Really, I've never seen anything like it. Well, there are a couple moments that perhaps compare, but it's got to be considered the low point for the NBA and one of the low points in American professional sports history. Yeah. yeah. So, so Matt, to pick up your story, there's 45 seconds left in this game that's out of reach. And it's a fair question why starters are even in the game at this point. Um, but they are, and Ron Artest was just a very physical, well, most of the players on both these teams were very physical players, but Ron Artest was one of the most physical, great defensive player, incredibly aggressive, just an unrelenting style of play, and he shoves Ben Wallace from behind, right. um, and then Wallace comes back at him, and a fight and scrum break out. Uh, and then, no, no fists were thrown, right? No, I mean, it was just, no, right, just no, kind of right, shoving right. and then a lot of jawing. Right. right, shoving and jawing. And then players are leaving the bench and making their way onto the court. And all of a sudden, there's just a lot of people on the court and a lot of milling around, which actually I want to come back to because the way the officials did or didn't get control of this thing, I think is a huge part of the story. But then hmm. fans start throwing stuff onto the court um, and it's, it becomes very chaotic and Ron Artest, who I know we're gonna talk more about, he's a featured person in the documentary and was a central part of the story. He walks over to the scorer's table mm -hmm. and lies down on the scorer's table. Lays down on his back, puts, he, he, it's like he's laying down at the beach. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and as he tells it later, he clearly was trying to calm himself down. Um, Though that wasn't necessarily apparent at the time. That was interesting to me. That was something I learned in the documentary. Yeah. He, was, he, he talks very openly about how he was in, 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 in therapy, basically trying yes. to control his emotions. Look, let me be very clear. I don't necessarily believe anything Ron Artest says. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like Ron Artest. I, I'm not even sure if Ron Artest remembers what actually happened and what the truth is. Um, yeah. uh, but Ron Artest now says he was counting to five, trying to calm himself down. That clearly wasn't apparent at the time. It seemed as if he was sort of performatively disengaging for the, from the entire thing that he had started. And that clearly rubbed a few people the wrong way. Yeah, I, I will say, Matt, about Artest, he is one of the first... NBA players to have talked openly about yep. mental health, absolutely, his mental health, 
But yes, I, I agree that at the time, it certainly wasn't clear to everybody <laughs> what he was doing. But in any event, as he's lying on the scorer's table, a fan comes down and dumps right. a cup of water on him. And then someone else throws a bottle at him. And then someone else throws a bottle at him. And then he chases the fan, the fans back into the stands. And then several other players are in the stands. And that's when this fight becomes much more than a fight between players Boy, and in many ways becomes a story of a, a generation gone wrong in basketball, which is very much the way it, it came to be framed in the hours and days and weeks and months after this incident took place. That was the way people framed it. This is uh, the quote unquote thuggish NBA, you know, the, the, the new type of NBA player, they're, they're, they're undisciplined, they're, they're too into hip hop, you know, people were yeah. coming up with all sorts of reasons. And yeah, I mean, really kind of what it was is young black men gone, gone wild, which I'm going to say, I just want to say this right now. This is what I thought at the time. And I certainly thought this after watching the documentary. The Pistons fans were out of control. Hundreds of them were just besides yes. themselves. Yes. I mean, when, when those guys are trying to walk off the court, they're just dumping drinks and they're throwing chairs. I mean, the, the Pistons fans instigated this entire thing. For, for, right. Well, first of all, many of them are, of course, after two and a half hours, drunk off their asses. Yeah. And right? some of them admitted it in the documentary. And, and one of the things the documentary really brings out is I think there were two security officers in the entire building. Yeah. A building yeah. with 20,000 fans in it. In and Detroit. A, <laughs> in Detroit, a notably right. raucous fan base. And I know that yeah. the district attorney who at who considered charges against the fans said from the beginning that this was absolutely instigated, that the criminal participants in this yeah. were the fans who precipitated or escalated dramatically what had been a scrum between players. And I appreciated the DA in this documentary rolling his eyes and saying, can you believe how much time I had to spend on this ridiculous <laughs> story in Detroit where there are murders and, you know, as like, but it, there was so much evidence, so many people to interview, so many camera angles they had to look at. And it just sounds like it consumed this guy's guy's life. Jonathan, so I want to ask you a question here. So I have a I have a theory and we're, we're trying to figure out maybe who to blame here. Right. Um, so I have this theory and I talk about this in my race and basketball class. I call this my artist at rest theory. Okay. And if we think about what caused the whole thing. Yeah, right. Okay. Artest shoves Wallace. Wallace shoves Artest back. And then the guys are jawing at each other. But it, it, it's nothing we haven't seen before in, in the NBA, right? Um, a little aggressive. But as, the, as they said in the documentary. And, and, and I just want to say, in this era, this kind of stuff happened all the time. All the time. Yeah, you're a Knicks fan, right? I mean, yeah, the, yeah. the Knicks in this era, I guess a couple yeah. years earlier. Yeah, this stuff happened all the time. The moment... The, the, the event that seems to have precipitated it, well, clearly is when that fan throws that bottle and it hits our test. Yeah. And what is our test doing at that point? He's, he's not fighting. He's not jawing. He is dramatically at rest. I mean, the, the way I thought of it is he's performing being at rest, although he tells me he was counting to five and trying to calm himself, maybe. But that fan didn't know it. It seems to me that there's this 
what 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 upset that fan so much is I've gone to this basketball game. Like for example, let me maybe put, get at this in a different way. If Artest and Wallace had been yelling at each other, had they been fighting with each other, actually trading punches, I think that fan would have been pumped. He would have been into it. But what offended that fan is when Artest, this young black basketball player who's there to entertain this white fan, he disengages. He just says, you know what? I'm just going to lie down. Um, I'm going to go completely at rest and I'm no longer going to be your per performer. And I think that's what pissed that fan off. Matt, that's very interesting. I mean, so, right. So in a way, right, the fans come to see a spectacle and they got, they actually get more than they even bargained for. Because oh, they're into it. They get a fight bonus, man. This is awesome. But then, I mean, just building on your theory or just re-articulating it, in a way, our test withdraws from the spectacle. Yeah. And the fan decides that is not acceptable. That I, is not acceptable. I yeah. am not done getting my rush from this spectacle. So if you are going to withdraw, I'm going to. I'm going to get you back. Yeah, you I'm are here to entertain the, gonna, me, Ron Artest. I'm the void. Yeah, I, I, I think there's something there. I mean, I'm not in the head of the fan. No, no, I, I, I think that's very interesting. I mean, one of the things that the documentary, and of course, you know, documentaries, they can selectively edit all they want, but they featured two fans. Yeah. Who, um, one of whom threw the bottle. Right. Um, and the other of whom confronted... Jermaine O'Neal on the court. No, he 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 confronts our our test. Oh, and then O'Neal intervenes. Yeah. And then O'Neal comes in. Yeah. So our 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 test has disengaged from the first melee in the in, yes. in he's he's yes. on the on the court trying to calm himself down. Yes. And again, these two again <laughs> again, and these two yahoos come in. I mean. Fist cocked, you know, spell yeah. They are clear. They're clearly come coming to fight. I couldn't believe what that guy said in the documentary. He said, "Somehow I ended up on the court." <laughs> like, what, what do you mean well, you ended up on the court? You went on the court, right? But so to your point about this, like desire for a spectacle and the fans being really in fundamental ways responsible for this, the two that they featured were utterly remorseless and unrepentant for yes. i mean they're admitting what they did which we threw bottles we were really drunk we went onto the court to confront the players and we feel we are not apologetic in any way nor do we feel any responsibility whatsoever yeah. for the role we might have played in all this this fan who somehow ended up on the court goes on to say that when i guess it's o'neill comes in and punches him he calls and it a quote, very close to taking his head off. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. He, he called it a quote unquote. He said it was a sucker punch. And then he says it was a, and then quote unquote, it was a bitch move. Yeah. Is what he said. Yeah. You come on the court and someone's defending Ron Artest. And that's what you have to say about the moment. I hope that guy, I don't know what he did or did. I mean, I think he got kicked out of the, the palace for the rest of his life, but I don't think he got any money from this. So th th that was one of the holes that was sort of, uh, in this documentary about the aftermath, we don't know too much about it. What What was the most kind of compelling or striking part of the documentary to you, would you say? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I really appreciated them, again, putting it in the context of the rivalry between the between the Pistons and the Pacers. I had forgotten all about that, right? Yeah. Um, and what a, what, a, what, a, what a statement game it was from the 
from the from the point of view of, of the Pacers. Jonathan, there were three things that I loved about this documentary, and their names were Ron Artest, Stephen Jackson, and Jermaine O'Neal. They were so thoughtful and so honest talking about what they were thinking then and the effect that it's had on them now. First of all, I am a- These, by the way, are three of the stars of the Pacers yeah. in and 2004. And the three guys who are involved in the scrum the most, you know, Ron Artest is gonna be suspended for the entirety of the season. Yes. Jackson and, and O'Neill got what, 30 and 25 games, something yeah, yeah. along those yeah. lines, lost, lost millions of dollars. Which, which to be clear are among the biggest suspensions in NBA history. Yes. So, I, uh, so they, they in, in sports terms, they paid a dramatic price for their participation in this event. David Stern came down hard on them yeah but uh, i love stephen jackson maybe it's because he was a warrior and he was on some great warriors teams you know i like stephen jackson because his relationship to george floyd um you know and and, and what he was doing the last couple of years stephen jackson is just going to tell it exactly like it is you know he was talking about, he had this one quote in there where someone was talking about the pressure in the nba he's like pressure i make love to pressure you know he has all sorts of comments like that and you know he was talking about I, i'm and sorry by the way not a guy who's going to back down from a fight not well that's what he said i'm not going to back down from anything if, if if i ride with you i ride with you run ron artest was getting beat in the stands i didn't think twice about going up there i i do it again um i thought all three of them and really i, I suppose in some ways the guy i was most impressed that, impressed with was jermaine o'neill and and talking about how angry he was at his teammates for doing this, talking about how unfairly he, uh, unfair he thought it was that he was kind of lumped in with Artest. Uh, he and Artest clearly that the, they butted heads both before and after this. I thought Jermaine O'Neal was um, really uh, interestingly honest, talking about how angry he was when Artest then left. The, the, the Pacers after this, how jealous he was when Ron Artest won a world championship with, with the Lakers, something that O'Neill never did. About five, five years later, yep. yeah. Yeah, I suppose Reggie Miller was fun to listen to as well. Reggie Miller kind of plays the role of the wise old sage in this documentary. But those three guys were so interesting and so introspective and so honest. That, that I thought by far, was the best part of the documentary. Matt, I think it's worth saying a little bit about Jermaine O'Neal, just because I'm, I'm just guessing a lot of people listening to this don't even know that name. Mm -hmm. He was a one of the guys in the late 90s who went straight from high school to the NBA. Right. And by 2004, he'd been in the league, I think five years or so, and was emerging as a major young star. Um, and many would argue was the best player on that championship caliber Pacers team. And he'd already and been traded, right? He was drafted by the Blazers and they, they got rid of him. They thought this kid's too young. And so he had a chip on his shoulder and he was really starting to prove himself. Yes, he was developing tremendously. And, and, and then he, he's involved in this fight and he's suspended for a long time. And there's a sense that this really kind of altered the rest of his career. Um, and that's something the documentary certainly emphasizes so there there's a it's i mean his story is not as well known certainly right. as our test story but 
he does emerge as a, a central and, and in some ways tragic figure in this. Yeah, and I was I was really touched by him talking about why he he, he left, uh, why he didn't go to college, and why he went straight to the MBA. You know, growing up in rural, impoverished South Carolina, and then realizing at a young age, I am the guy in my family who can break the cycle of poverty. Like I, I I've seen all these generations, I've heard these stories. I'm the guy who can do it. And I mean, he of course does do it. I mean, he he, he goes to the NBA, he makes his millions of dollars. I, I think of Jermaine O'Neal certainly as having a very good career. Um, yeah. But the it, documentary- it Just not what I think people thought it could have been, you know, from the vantage point of yeah. before that night compared to after that night. Yeah, and Jonathan, I, I think if I have a, a critique of the documentary, and here's where the historian in me, I guess, comes in, I wanted a little more historical context. Um, I, I thought it would have been helpful to talk about what was going on in the NBA at that time, maybe the, the six, seven, eight years before that, because the NBA was faced with a lot of, well, I don't want to call them uh, crises, because the malice at the palace turned out to be the crisis, but there were a lot of uh, black eyes that the NBA was, was, was getting in the, like Jordan had retired and now there's this new generation of players. And from the perspective of David Stern, they just kept messing up. Yeah, so um, David Stern, who, you know, as Matt, as you said, along with Magic Johnson, Larry Bird and Michael Jordan really founds the modern powerhouse economic cultural global powerhouse that the NBA has become. I think you're right. I mean, they are facing a crisis. Jordan retires in 99. I mean, he came back in 2001, but that was a completely different incarnation. And there's this new generation of players, Allen Iverson, who is a controversial and certainly from a marketing standpoint, a problematic figure in some ways. In we some had ways. an it, we had Latrell Sprewell had yep. uh, a star player in the 1990s um, who, when he was playing for Golden State, choked his coach during practice. And so in many ways, the Malice in the Palace in 2004 is the culmination of several years of the NBA's reputation in perpetual decline, especially from the perspective of the predominantly white media yeah. and fan base that covers and pays the freight for the NBA. Yeah, the, these were the years, you know, right before the Malice at the Palace of the Portland Jail Blazers, as people like to call them, you know, and uh, a bunch of players got arrested for smoking weed. I mean, that was the crime. You know, Bill Walton, a white player, can smoke weed in the 1970s. And, and he's, and, counter, he's, he's countercultural. He's a countercultural icon, in fact. Yeah, right, exactly. And then these guys smoke weed and, and, they're, and, and they're thugs, you know, and then smoking weed is totally legal in, 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 in Oregon now. Um, hey, let's not forget Kobe Bryant. You know, Kobe Bryant was the next Michael Jordan, and this was right after he had been arrested for sexual assault. I mean, right. it, it looked like Kobe Bryant might be going to jail at this time. In some ways, the face of the NBA that face was a mugshot on the cover of, of, of Sports Illustrated. Um, you know, and then I think it all kind of fell apart, I guess, that summer in 2004, the, um, 
the NBA players representing the United States. Right, it was 2004 when they lost to Puerto Rico by 19. In, in the Rome Olympics. Yeah, uh, got the, got the um, uh, bronze medal and people said these guys are too young. No one knows how to play the game anyway uh, anymore. They're all interested in, in their own stats. You know, that was a crisis. And then, no, no, that's not a crisis. Malice at the palace yeah. is a crisis. But, but, but Matt, to your point about something, I, I just was surprised by the documentaries more or less omitting this was, as you said, first of all, that kind of recent history of the NBA leading up to and culminating in the malice in the palace. And in spite of the fact that the three principal uh, people in the documentary are African-American to themselves, talk very openly and thoughtfully about race, yeah. The documentary weirdly kind of ignored that. Um, you know, in particular, after this fight, when Stern comes down incredibly hard, he levies these unprecedented suspensions in terms of the history of North American sports, and the media is going crazy about the thuggish NBA. And Jermaine O'Neal, among others, is very clear to say, look, thug, when you say thug in this context, you're just saying the N-word. Right. You know, it, it, it's the same thing. And so the media is going crazy and unapologetically bashing the NBA for um, its, as, as you said earlier, its thuggish rap music reputation. And David Stern decides he is cleaning up the NBA. It gets a new dress code. Yeah, hey, John, and I, I, yeah, and, and I want to talk about this, but I want to say one thing quickly yeah. first. Um, yeah. David Stern and the powers that be, they turn against hip hop culture, right? Um, it's a, basically, it's, it's, yeah, it, it's this hip hop generation. It's the rap music these guys are listening to. It's what's turning them into gangsters and so on and so forth. It's the same hip hop that they were playing in their stadiums for the for the ten years prior. It's the same culture that the that that the dancers were using at halftime. The NBA had had latched onto hip hop culture and was profiting off of hip hop culture. All those videos of you know basketball players playing on the dilapidated quote unquote ghetto courts that you could buy on the VHS. The NBA was latching onto that and kind of selling that version of blackness as a way of making their league seem like the authentic league. And then as soon as this happens, boom, it's hip hop. And they just, I mean, you know, Stern just completely reversed course and tried to blame it all on that. Matt, I wanna, I wanna read you a quote. This is from Commissioner Stern in the aftermath of this fight and his decision to impose these suspensions, as I just mentioned, this dress code, no more do-rags for guys sitting on the bench, no more cornrows. They can't dress in jeans and, in, in jeans and t-shirts anymore. They no have to wear, yep. no they've got to wear suits. They've no got bling. to clean. Yeah, so, so this is what he says. He says, I think it's fair to say that the, first, that the NBA was the first sport that was widely viewed as a black sport. And whatever the numbers ultimately are for other sports, the NBA will always be treated a certain way because of that. Our players are so visible that if they have afros or cornrows or tattoos, and then he says white or black as if- <laughs> all, those, all those white afros. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, our consumers pick it up. 
So I think there are always some elements of race involved that affect judgments about the NBA, all of which is to say no one ever doubted that David Stern was a smart guy. He understood his business and his audience very well. And though they walked this line for years between some of these problematic image issues on the one hand and trying to play up the hip hop stuff on the other, as soon as this happened, he knew exactly what to focus on who he was going to blame and how they were going to, you know, just change the business model basically. Well, and it, and it, and it worked and it doesn't make it right, but it, but it, but it worked. And, and obviously David Stern, I mean, David Stern was general counsel for the NBA in the 1970s. In the 1970s, people said there were people out there said the NBA has a quote unquote blackness problem. The league is perceived as a black league. And that's a problem in the 1970s. There were some famous fights, right? There was Kermit Washington taking Rudy Tomjanovich's head off. There was what Maurice Lucas and Daryl Dawkins fighting in the finals. I mean, so he has all these, these, these precedents in his head. And the NBA worked very hard to overcome its quote unquote blackness problem in the 1970s. Larry Bird had a lot to do with that. Larry Bird, the, the great white hope for the NBA in the 1980s. Yeah. And, and, you know, now the NBA is sort of profiting off this idea that it's the black league. America has changed enough that this is an asset. But boy, did he turn on that fast after this but, happened. But, but Matt, and I mean, I, 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 this is, gets a little bit touchy, but I don't really know how else to say. And I'm really interested in your reaction. As you said, the NBA is profiting off the fact now that it's a black league, but it's a very different image of blackness. Oh, yes. Existed yeah. 17 years ago. I mean, you've got, I mean, the faces of the NBA since that fight have yeah. become people like LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Steph Curry, uh, and then this slew of European players, including Giannis. And, and they, are, they are these perfect yeah. representations. They are, they're good looking. They dress nicely. They never get into any trouble ever. Yeah. They, they, <laughs> they, they dress very creatively sometimes. I think of James yes. Harden and uh, Russell Westbrook and stuff, but it's but, but it, like fashionistas. Yeah, well, mean, Jonathan, here's, yeah. here's a moment where when I was teaching this in my class, my students turned around and, and, and taught me something. Yeah. I was talking about those guys now, the LeBrons and the Westbrooks and the Hardens, and I showed pictures of them. And I'm saying, these guys don't dress like, like, like uh, hip hop artists anymore. You know, yeah. they, and then my student said, no, dude, that's what hip hop artists dress like now. You're stuck in the 80s where you think of hip hop artists as guys wearing the sagging jeans and the, and the backwards caps and the bandanas. And they're right. I mean, but but that was the vision that 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 Stern was trying to get away from from the the Source Awards and the Vibe Awards and the fact that at the start of the season we learned that I forgot this in the documentary. Ron Artest wanted to take off to time off because he wanted to finish his rap album. You know, it was all part of a piece for 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 David Stern. Right, right. So this is now this very commercialized, I would say. Um, just kind of uh, a bland. It's not bland, but it's it's a it's a very domesticated league. Well, you know who the NBA hired in the aftermath of this? They they hired Matthew Dowd, who was George W. Bush's presidential reelection campaign guy, 
And they went to him and you're, 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 we're on Zoom, you're nodding, so you know this story. And they basically said, how can we appeal to red state America? And you know, part of it was the dress red code. Red state America, of course, being a very thinly disguised code for white America. Oh, is it even thinly disguised? Yeah, I just, I just yeah. assume that's, that's what he meant. Yeah, um, you know, and, and one of the things that the guy said was less hip hop in the stands and more country music. Thank God they didn't follow that rule. I love going to an NBA games and not hearing hip hop. But you know, it, it, it makes me think of what are the other moments in American sports history that are like this? And the, the only one that I can really think of, I guess, or maybe I'm forgetting one, there's that that hockey fight in 1979 where members of the Bruins right go into the stands in Madison Square Garden. Madison Square Garden, yes. Against the Rangers, and no one look. I realize 1979 is not 2004, but no one said no more Bob Seger when this happened. You know that they went after black culture. Matt, we could do multiple episodes comparing and contrasting the NHL to the NBA, that the NHL has celebrated fighting for decades. That yeah. no one, the NHL has never had a rule that said you must go to college for a year before you can play in the NHL. It's no problem when 17 year old white Canadians get drafted and end up in the NHL when they're 18 years old, having come not even from high school, they've left to go play junior hockey. And I mean, you know, the, the differences between how the NBA and the NHL are treated on all these fronts is, I mean, it's black and white in, in, in the starkest in the starkest terms. Yeah, and Jonathan, you, you referred to the, to the uh, age limit uh, uh, rule. That is another one of, uh, another of the aftermaths of this. That's David right. Stern and others thought there were just too many young guys coming in the league. Guys who I suppose they're thinking to themselves have not been disciplined by college coaches yet. They're not um, mature enough. They can't yep. handle the money. Da, da, da. And so this is when that 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 rule comes in that you have to go to college or at least you have to wait one year. Some guys are deciding to go to the G League now, but back then it was college. I mean, this is why a guy named Kevin Durant from Washington, D.C. goes to the University of Texas for one year. He has no interest really in going there. He wants to go to the NBA and should have gone to the NBA. And I, you gave me a quote. I've got a quote here from Jermaine O'Neal from many years ago talking about this when that when that one year of college rule went in he put it like this he said as a black guy you kind of think race is the reason why it's coming up I mean and then he said you don't hear about it in baseball or hockey it's unconstitutional if I can go to the U.S. Army and fight in a war at 18 why can't I play basketball for for 48 minutes and now let me say about that quote from O'Neill he took so much crap for that quote I mean Sports talk radio, the usual suspects went crazy. How dare you suggest that race is a factor in da 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 when it's the most obvious thing in the world in this case? Yeah, right. When almost every single one of the fans throwing stuff and yelling things at the at at the palace was white, and almost I guess there was an Austin Crozier sighting. I think in the he was in <laughs> in, in his in his civvies. Um, uh, and 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 for the record, uh, you know, he wasn't the one who almost got 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 maced by that 
cop who ran onto the court. I didn't know that story. It looked like that cop was about to mace Jermaine O'Neal and Reggie Miller uh, in, in that moment. That's, a, that's one of the many interesting moments that are out there that I, I think maybe we need to end by saying people should watch this documentary. So what, one of the things that struck me the most, Matt, about the documentary, going back to our test and just kind of on a human level was, and this did, I mean, I, one of the things the documentary kept saying is if you see all the footage, you'll have a completely different view of this fight than the media portrayed at the time. One of the things that was really clear is that when they finally get the players off the court, and I started to complain about this earlier, I cannot believe how long the players were just allowed to mill around out there. It's like, just call the game. It's over. Yeah. You know, nothing good is going to happen at this point. Just clear the court and the arena. And I don't know why it took so long for them to do that. But when our test is being escorted off the court, by some of his teammates and coaches as he is in such obvious distress. Yeah. Like when you see Steven Jackson and Ben Wallace coming off the court, they are pissed. They yeah, are yeah. angry. They are ready to fight. Ron Artest is, Ron Artest is in pain. Like yeah, it's, no. I don't mean physical pain. Yeah. It's obvious yeah. that he is suffering. And I was really struck by that. And again, I think that's so contrary especially to his popular image at the time, that that was one of the most powerful images of the, of the documentary to me. Well, and, and then Artes backs it up by talking about how much pain he was in and how hard, and he, he, you know, I, I thought it was so interesting when he said, I'm one of those guys who when I'm low or when I'm high, I cannot control myself. Uh, you know, when, when, when I fail and when I succeed, I lose control. Um, and he had clearly done it then. Look, it didn't help to have 5,000 people screaming at you, throwing things at you, running onto the court. Those guys, I, I hesitate to, to, to put it this way, but I, it's probably the way I should. They probably felt like caged animals and they felt like that cage was just collapsing in. That must have been terrifying. Who knows what was going to happen? One, one, one of the cops said, my my weapon could have been pulled out of my out of my holster at, 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 at any time. I mean, that was a serious breach of, of, of safety. Well, and Matt, I, I mean, I, I think the, maybe this, this is the final comment for me, the, the caged animal imagery is a powerful one because in fact, I think the fans clearly saw the players as caged animals. Yeah. as zoo animals that they could that they could throw shit at and do what they want with and again they were just they 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 are not viewed as fully human and because of that they can be treated a certain way especially when the normal rules in an arena begin to break down there was this line over and over that i kept hearing from 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 players and from gms and from talking heads and I was kind of surprised by it. They all said, no matter what, you can never go into the stands. And you know what? That's a bunch of BS. I'm sorry. If, if, totally if, someone, if, 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 if someone says something about your daughter like they did to Vernon Maxwell, causing him to go into the stands, if someone throws something at you, I'm sorry, if someone attacks you, you're not allowed to aggressively defend yourself. I think it's a two-way street. And this idea that no matter what is ever done or said to you that you can't go into the stands, I, I don't buy it. 
And, and let me add, I, I absolutely agree. And let me add that what fans say they want all the time from athletes is maximum effort, maximum physical exertion. You are supposed to be playing with this insane level of adrenaline coursing through you. And at the same time, you are supposed to have superhuman restraint. Yeah, right. And it's not, it's not, those are not compatible. Especially when someone's yelling the N-word at a black player, which they still do, obviously, at, right. in they NBA. They still arenas. do. In 2021, yeah. that crap is still happening. Still going on. Yeah. All right, Jonathan. Daniel's telling us that we've gone long enough. Thank you, Daniel, for because otherwise we can keep talking about this. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, I don't know how to close a podcast. That is absolutely your job. So I'm going to just shut up. <laughs> and keep um, well, Matt, this was, this was fun, as always. Uh, this was another episode of Agony of Defeat. Uh, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your, your podcasts. And please do spread the word, like and rate and all that good stuff. Um, we will be back for another episode soon. We want to give a special thanks, as always, to our awesome producer, Daniel Myrick. And until next time.